Hello, hello. Welcome to the Bali Effect. This is Preeti Tana. And this is Dee Dee Perry. And it's another Bali Effect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's up, Preeti? It's mandatory that you sing on every podcast because it makes me so happy. You know what it is, full disclosure? Singing lifts my spirits. And it's a way for me to fake it until I actually make it. Sometimes. Sometimes it's just like a utteral, you know, reflex in response to happiness. But I really do find if I'm feeling low, a little bit of song lifts me a bit. So it lifts, it lifts everyone else, too, with your beautiful voice. Ah! Well, that was more of like mic check, like because because I used to be an MC, But we'll talk about that in another episode. OK. <laughs> In my former life as a kitty copper at the age of seven. But anyway, Preeti. Preeti. How you doing? Okay. Okay. All right. Well, mm-hmm. I, I know that the it's not fully feeling like it because hashtag 2020, but Thanksgiving is coming up. It's not that far off. And what I realized when I was thinking about this, you know, this week's episode was that Last year, we were recording, like we were actually doing this because we both shared like fun Thanksgiving stories. And number one, it made me very grateful for the fact that we're still doing this a year out. I think we didn't release the episode until later. later Yeah, we were in the studio. I remember that. And this was this was when we were... (laughs) You know, following the rules of banking episodes before we go live, as as opposed to our 2020 version of fly by the seat of our pants on a weekly basis. So exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, I know you know it tends to be pretty cliche to say, you know, Preeti, what are you grateful for? But you know what, the 2020 version uh, of that question, and quite frankly, I will say as an aside, I think it's always. Very, very powerful to reflect on the things that we are grateful for, especially in times when so many things are changing mm-hmm. and so many things seem to be uh, just taken away that, you know, the things that we can no longer do under the circumstances of a pandemic. However, I would like to offer a question with a bit of a 2020 spin. Okay. Um, you know, we are the Bali effect mm-hmm. where we explore life's pivotal moments Always on brand. Oh, (laughs) and so many of life's pivotal moments uh, really are the result of having some kind of an awakening, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, with all that 2020 has brought for you, what awakenings perhaps are you most grateful for? D. Oh, D is always on brand, as I just mentioned, including sending me like the questions at 954. I, I, I was sure to flag it for you ahead of time. So <laughs> but answering on the spot now, girl, that's on you. And me, <laughs> didn't really read them. Okay. Um, w- w- awakening? Mm-hmm. An yeah. awakening you've had in 2020 that you were thankful about having had. I, you know, I think there are so many, truly. But if I were to sum it up in one that uh, maybe everything else could sit around, if you will, I, I, I really have to say it's, it's the sense of self, you know, and the, the work that I've always done on, on trying to understand who I am, um, trying to, to have that grounding and that presence. I think the awareness of having a strong sense of self and having 
a good understanding of who you are, it allows you to move through difficult situations without too much um, interference. You know, there's always there are always things that will, you know, sway you harder, you know, faster, you know, and you may be down for the count. But if you have that, you know, awareness, quite honestly, of who you are, I think that can move you through through many difficult times. So for me, I've had a lot of time to think about this on my own. You know, I think we all, for any of us that are kind of weathering through the pandemic solo, you you start to think about um, what makes you happy and how to pivot your life. And that foundation um, has helped me significantly uh, to sort of arguably move through a year that's been, you know, quite, quite shitty, shitty, shitty. Uh, you know what I just, I was like, don't curse. And I just said it three times. But yeah, I, I would say that. I would say strong, strong foundation of self. You know, that's very powerful. And there's so many follow-up questions that I want to ask. Um, I will ask one. Do you think that like a person's foundation is something that exists pretty early on and, and you go through your life trying to discover what it is? Or do you think the foundation is something that you can relay, readjust, um, restructure as you go about your life? Uh, I, I think you can adjust and restructure, not to bring in my favorite philosopher, psychiatrist Carl Jung again but I, I believe it was he said something along the lines of like the the privilege of a lifetime is becoming who you truly are or something like that right mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um, I think the first thing is awareness that you you are you know a force to be reckoned with and you are someone that can create your own foundation um, you know I think there are certain qualities that that we inherit and certain personality traits that contribute to it but I think if you can you can pivot you know, just like this podcast is all about, I think those are some of the moments that, that build upon your foundation. I think you, you always have the opportunity to redefine how you show up and who mm. you are. Okay. okay. Well, thank you very much. And, and I thank <laughs> you for offering that um, very uh, wholesome uh, response to the question. I was thinking about it myself yes. ahead of this. I mean, all of five minutes ago. <laughs> but something that I have been awakened to this year, uh, among many things, is just how much I really did not know about the existence of entire worlds um, mm -hmm. outside of the one in which I live. Yeah. Uh, most recently with the election outcome and seeing that over 70 million people uh, found it fit to support uh, a line of, for me, it's beyond politics, just an ideology that attacks, in my view, the humanity of so many. That was an awakening. I, I didn't mm. realize that that world was as large as it is. Um, you know, yeah. it's, I, I agree with you. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, sometimes I don't know if we, did we not realize or did we not want to know? Partially, partially, yeah. but I can offer a more specific example that actually relates to my attire for today. See those in listener land, check us out on YouTube so you can get the visual on this, but I'm wearing a sweatshirt, um, from our favorite, uh, national black justice coalition that on the back of it, here, I'll just, I'll turn around so you can see it, I hope. 
Can you see that? I'm not yes, sure. we can. Like but you might have to. <laughs> anyway, I tried my best. But uh, on the, it is a shirt that is saying that it is uh, celebrating blackness and it is anti-racism, anti-homophobia, anti-transphobia, anti-bigotry, anti-all these things that make the world messy and, and awful unnecessarily. And yesterday, I didn't know that this even existed, but yesterday was International Transgender Day of Remembrance, and that was to uh, memorialize the lives that have been lost as a direct consequence of violence against trans people rooted in transphobia. And this year has been the year that I have really been awakened to how horrifically this community is suffering. Mm. I did not know. I did not know. And, you know, tying in a bit with our conversation, uh, which was so powerful last week with Hannah, um, it really is okay and I think takes a bit of humility to say there are folks out there, there are worlds out there where there is tremendous devastation happening that you just know nothing about. Mm -hmm. I just knew nothing about but I credit the advocates uh, within that community, the allies outside of the community. You know, I, can, I shouldn't even say it like that. They all are one community. But for the people who are speaking truth to yeah. the rest of the folks who just are not in the know, I really do credit them. And, and the National Black Justice Coalition is one of those. And, of course, our friend David Johns. But I really, really now feel it is incumbent upon me, now that I do know, to educate myself more about this issue and to become not only an ally, but a celebrant mm -hmm. of the trans community, of trans people. You know, it's not just enough to say, isn't it awful that all these folks are being oppressed and getting murdered? No, I think a part of eliminating stigma and bigotry and, and all of that mess is celebrating people for who they are. Because now you're not the other. Look, yeah. If I'm dancing with you in the streets, you know, or if I'm working alongside you in, in my job, or if I am living next to you, if I can really just, if I can really participate in human life with you, then I think it's it's a lot it's a lot more difficult to to be a hater. So that is the work that I need to do, and that is one of the areas that I'm really grateful for getting woke on because I really I didn't know I think I think many of us uh got woke <laughs> on so many different aspects and and the one thing you said that I think is so interesting is you know getting woke is great I think how you react and how you again filter not even filter but how you then transform yourself to then be more aware and to show up in ways that then include your newfound you know awareness and wokeness and then how you interact with certain communities i think that's the, that's the key you know i uh, listen being aware and and getting that light bulb moment is fantastic and and i think that is so important because if you're not aware you cannot take any action taking action whether that's self action you know reading understanding like you mentioned Hannah last week really diving into her own beliefs and her own thoughts and how she shows up in the world i think that's where the hard work is and that's that's commendable for anyone who says okay i get it but i'm also going to do something 
Well, so I, good. D, I t- high five, D. Well, You're, well, you know what? I'm going to challenge you in this moment because I have not asked you about this ahead of time, but I hope you don't mind. Mm. Would you mind if any, if there are any trans folks in this community of folks who are listening to this podcast, or if anybody knows some remarkable trans folks who would like to come and be a guest to speak to us, to educate us, to, to educate yes. the rest of our listeners. You don't even have to finish that sentence. Well, the... Please hit us up on Instagram. DM us. We want to talk to you. Absolutely. Come on through. It has. Yeah. And I think it has been, you know, one of the greatest pleasures of 20. And, you know, even when we started this podcast, I talk about it all the time. The incredible, wonderful souls that have joined us and shared their stories and have opened their hearts to us, including today's guest, which I'm really excited. Yes. Okay. Uh, Talk it's about phenomenal. getting woke. Yeah. <laughs> she is. She is an advocate. She is uh, a brilliant human, and she is. And I didn't even get to. <laughs> I didn't get to ask her whether it's okay for me to say some things. Uh, but we'll just roll with it, and <laughs> and you'll tell us. At me, you know, whenever it is, it is uh, appropriate. But our guest for today is beautiful and brilliant Anila Malik, who is the founder of Feed the Malik, a food blog, digital marketing, and advocacy business that focuses on telling complex, diverse stories through food. And she has been featured, y'all, in many, many publications, including the Washington Post. And she is known for her work to promote Black-owned restaurants in the D.C. region. And she recently took her business full time. Well, welcome, Miss Anila Malik, to the Bali Effect. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. We are so thrilled to have you. Now, you to me are a global citizen in every sense of the word. Can you tell us where you're from and and what is your background? Because that. It will, it will become relevant um, to other questions that we have for you. Mm-hmm. So I'm originally from Hawaii, uh, but I have a very kind of convoluted <laughs> story in that my family's very diverse. Uh, you know, I'm from an, um, uh, a mixed uh, household. And then I, for a long time, thought I was going to work in politics. I studied in undergrad Arabic and international relations. And for my master's degree, I studied uh, Arab studies, which is basically the same thing, Arab history, culture, language, politics. Um, And then I joined the Foreign Service and I became a diplomat and I served overseas. And I've, I've studied abroad and lived abroad and worked abroad. And that was just something that I really enjoy. And it it's an integral part of who I am, though right now I'm struggling because I can't travel. And that's always difficult for me to be in one place for too, too long. Mm -hmm. Um, But then eventually I pivoted, which is the most overused word of 2020, but (laughs) I decided to leave the service and take what had been a side project, a passion project, blogging about food full time. Um, And that's what I do now, right? I write about food. I take pictures of food. I dream about food and I talk to other people about food. (laughs) Okay, so you've you've lived like five lives. <laughs> uh, 
Do you mind me asking, Anila, how old are you? You don't have to answer that if you are not. No, it's fine. I just turned 30 uh, a few weeks ago. Did you hear that? I I heard it. (laughs) I think, you know, when you sent, so, you know, um, Anila being in our Instagram feed and like who you mentioned, you know, who I was like, who is this person with all these beautiful pictures and the food? Let's talk to her. And then honestly, this morning, Anila, when I read about you and I thought the foreign service, this woman, who is really, I think it's so fascinating the choice that you made from being in the foreign service to transfer. But can you tell us a little bit about being in the foreign service? Because I got to tell you, that was my dream as a kid, one of them. And, and again, I think perhaps I, I advocate for our listeners who perhaps are not necessarily younger, but, but they might not know these fancy diplomatic terms y'all are throwing around. What's the foreign service? Uh, please explain. Because <laughs> not okay, everybody knows. So, uh, the foreign service is a core of public servants who represent the United States abroad. So when I was in the foreign service, I was the most common term is a diplomat. I worked in Amman, Jordan, um, and, and diplomats do everything from the fancy things like going to, you know, official balls and events and having to hobnob and do all the networking to the really grunt work, like making sure that, um, you know, you could work, for example, doing logistics and making sure that the people serving in the country have what they need, including like housing and, making sure they can get a repairman if something breaks in their house. There's all different levels of foreign service work because it's a really kind of, it's a lifestyle. So you have to take care of people when they live overseas as well. Now, when you say take care of people, do you mean take care of the Americans who are the expats living in the foreign countries? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's generally what I'm referring to. But also, Mm -hmm. um, for example, I did visa work, which involved interviewing people foreigners who want to come to the United States for a variety of reasons to decide whether they qualify for their visas. And I, in that position, really took the took on the perspective that I was also taking care of people. Like, even if I had to say no, even if this person didn't qualify, I felt like it was my responsibility to say no in a way that was respectful, that lets them know that I understand where they're coming from, that I understand their concerns, that's culturally appropriate, right? Because um, that work was also done in Arabic. So when you're speaking in a foreign language, you have to, to try to understand the nuances of that language and how it's used. So it's a really comprehensive profession. I can't, you know, describe what is being a diplomat in a day because you could be doing any number of things. How many languages do you speak? And is Arabic one of them? Yes. So I'm an Arabic speaker. Um, I'm a passable Arabic speaker. I will probably never say that I'm fluent because it's so difficult, but Mm. 10 years later, I'm, I'm, I can get by. Um, and I also speak a little bit of Urdu, though it's rapidly kind of deteriorating because I'm not using it right now. Mm-hmm. Wow. So. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. So what sort of, and if there weren't any, then hey, we'll move pre- past the question. But <laughs> did you find that there were misconceptions that uh, people in the country where you were working in Jordan had about Americans when you would interact with them that, uh, mm-hmm. that you had to run up against and, and how did you, what were they and how did you <laughs> respond to those? 
who doesn't have misconceptions about <laughs> Americans, really? <laughs> yeah, well, so that's kind of, that's a complex question because I was an American, but I was also a diplomat, which is mm-hmm. like, right, I was an official. And and so when I interacted with people as a diplomat, there is often this perception that diplomats are white men, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So they're like, where did this little brown girl with curly hair come from? And mm. I, have young, I have a young face, so I look much younger, I think, than they would expect. So there was that. And then beyond the, you know, professional kind of misconceptions, there was, I think, a lot of confusion about me in general because I'm so ethnically ambiguous. And my husband is Arab American and we both speak Arabic. And so they were like, what do, but, but like, where did you come from? Like, you just don't match our idea of what an American is, which is just generally a white tourist who's going to spend money and maybe learn a few words and leave. Um, and, but I found that in Jordan, people were so friendly and so welcoming that, you know, those misconceptions, like they were gone in two seconds because people were already inviting us over for dinner and, you know. <laughs> and extending their hospitality. I find that to be so incredibly lovely about different countries, not ours, you know, that that extension of hospitality so quickly, you mm-hmm. know, just in terms of you're a human, I'm a human, come have dinner. What was your answer when they asked you, where did you come from? We don't understand. I mean, I would explain, right, mm-hmm. that my, my mom is Asian American and my dad is African American and... I'm American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's really just kind of like the, the baseline response. Um, but often in my case, because I am ethnically ambiguous, like I said, I felt like the question was actually them asking me if I was a little bit Arab somewhere because they're like, you mm. speak the language. And a lot of people would ask, are you Egyptian American or, um, and so they were they were really just wondering if I had a tie back to, you know, their home region. What year was this? This was we got back. Wow, we've been in quarantine for so long. Um, <laughs> we got back two years ago. So and we, we were there for uh, two and a half years. So it's 2020, 2018. I think late 2018 we came back. Yeah. So this was during which administration? Trump. Okay. Mm-hmm. We'll get back to that in two Look seconds. how quickly you forgot. You're like, who is the president? <laughs> Just two years ago. <laughs> okay. Um, I do want to know, because um, you mentioned folks would invite you to come and have a meal. Number one, have you always been a foodie? Like from the time that you were a kid, were you into food or was that something that became an outlet for you as an adult? So I was definitely always a foodie. And I think my whole family were all foodies, right? That term didn't exist when I was a kid or it wasn't used in the same way, but we would have like cooking contests, me and my siblings when we were young and my parents would buy all the ingredients and then My mom's really sweet, so nobody would ever win. Everyone would just get, like, really nice feedback on their pretty, probably, poor dishes that they made. (laughs) That is awesome. Okay, so when you were – no, let me rephrase this. Why do you think that food is so powerful um, culturally or even politically? I think that 
food is so powerful because it's something we all need and we all experience as um, as a piece of history, even if we don't understand it on a surface level. So we everyone has to eat, right? Everyone needs food and water. So on that base level, it's a shared experience. But then foods that we eat now are, whether we get them out from a restaurant or we make them at home, they're an amalgamation of, of generations worth of experimentation with the ingredients that are available in that place, with the techniques that our mothers and grandmothers and great-great-grandparents um, and our forefathers experimented with and refined. And so that's like a very, I think, academic explanation. But the way that people feel that is when they eat something that, for example, their mom made that their grandma used to make, they get that feeling of, you know, like comfort and home and joy. And so I think because we all have these kind of shared historical memories through food, that food is especially powerful to provoke us to either emotion or to just help ease the pathways of connection, right? Because it's really hard to be angry at someone over a meal. Let's hope that's the case with Thanksgiving this year. <laughs> Preeti, did you have a question or? You know, the, but, but uh, Anila, when you're talking about this shared experience of food, do you think that, and I agree, you know, when you're eating a meal or a dish that your mom gives you that, you know, comes from generations of, of recipes and love. I, I actually have two questions. Do you think, you ever see that movie like Water for Chocolate? Mm-hmm. Do you, do you believe in the premise that emotion travels through food? I think so. But for me, food is like a really romantic kind of experience and concept. Um, but yeah, I would say so. Okay. And my second question around this experience of having a meal is, is it simply about the moment of tasting the food or is it about where you are, who you're with? Um, you know, I've often found when I go to Bombay, you know, I love the food and it's such a beautiful experience for me to, you know, yes, eat with family, but the taste and the smells, but it's also the sounds and where mm -hmm. I am. And when I come back home, there are certain things that I crave and I'll, you know, living in New York city, you can get almost anything. It's not the same. <laughs> I have to tell you, it's not the same. <laughs> so when you talk about these experiences, you know, is it, especially in 2020 when we're all at home, is it about all of the senses or can you get that same experience with simply just a bite of food anywhere you are? I don't think you can get the same experience with just a bite of food. And so that's been particularly difficult for me mm -hmm. and my platform during, you know, this year as I, I tell stories through food, but the way that I am allowed to or feel comfortable engaging with food has changed so much, right? So I'm not comfortable with indoor dining. We have eaten indoors a few times mm -hmm. when we were picking up takeout and realized no one was there and we are early, early eaters. So no one was going to be there. So beyond that, right, my experiences of restaurants are grabbing takeout or maybe calling on the phone. Um, and so I miss that kind of communal mm -hmm. dining experience where there's music and, you know, I can hear other tables laughing yeah. um, or fighting. This is a city. Sometimes you get a little bit of everything. <laughs> um, and I've 
had a hard time recreating that at home. And so I've actually talked about this on my account that I've had periods this year where I felt really unmotivated and just like the artistic spirit was not there because how many times can I make my favorite dish at home in our 550 square foot apartment before it loses its luster? I totally hear that, but I, I want to, this is a testament to your feed and to Instagram. I think the, on going towards the other end of that question, you can elicit that same feeling through visual. And I think that, you know, maybe you're not experiencing what you love in terms of, of food and the dining experience, but I, in viewing what you're putting up there and viewing the pictures, I go to a different place. And so it's just interesting to me how that visual and the photos can, for a moment, make me think about an experience that I had, you know? So I think, I think you can just let you know, um, I know it must be difficult, but I think you are getting an emotion across by, you know, showing food beautifully. I try. Mm. I definitely try. What she's saying is thank you for the food porn. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a terrible cook, so thank you. Anila, <laughs> well, can you explain to us why you would want to, to give up the glamorous life of a diplomat representing your, your country, you know, as such a badass, really, like showing up in spaces where no one expects anybody who looks like you to be number one and then to have power number two. Um, it seems like it was something that you worked so hard for for so long. What what caused you to shift away to something different, so i.e. food? It's definitely a career that requires a lot of investment, right? So I did work very hard for a very long time. Um, and there was just a confluence of events that convinced me that staying in the service, I could definitely have an impact, right? I could make a positive impact on policy, on people's lives, but that it might take me 15 or 20 years to do so because it's a large organization, right? Tens of thousands of people. And so it's very difficult when you're entry level to imagine what it's going to be like when you're not doing grunt work. And I've, I'm fine with grunt work, but you know, I, I was to the point where I was like, I don't want to pay my dues for the next eight to 10 years. Um, and that's, you know, that's a difficult proposition for someone who, frankly, I sometimes felt like I was being held back. Um, and so in the diplomatic service, the, we have specializations and my specialty was public diplomacy, which involves the same skills and tools that I use for Feed the Malik, that I use for my blog, public speaking, videography, mm-hmm. writing, talking points, doing press. Um, and I felt based on multiple experiences in the service that, I wasn't considered really qualified to do that work because I was so young when I was already doing that work by myself without any resources and excelling and doing things that nobody thought I was capable of doing, but in the service that wasn't taken seriously. Mm. Wasn't taken seriously by your superiors. I mean, you know, I, one of the most important things I've learned this year is how incredibly powerful it is to have an advocate you know, if you're mm-hmm. in a place of work that has structure and hierarchy, is it that you didn't have that advocate or you felt as though, generally speaking, those skills weren't appreciated based on, you know, the history of the service? 
So I definitely had advocates that were superiors and peers, but Mm -hmm. when it came time for me to every few years, we have to like kind of move on to a new job, but within the service. Mm -hmm. So when it came time for me to move on to a new job, even though I had advocates and I had great recommendations and I was applying for things I was very, very qualified for, right? I wasn't applying to go be the lead press liaison in Paris. And like, like small, I was going for small potatoes in recognition of the fact that I was young and newer to the service. Um, but despite having advocates, right, it was very difficult for me to be taken seriously as a candidate for positions that I frankly felt I was overqualified for. Mm-hmm. And that's a common experience in the service. It's not unique mm-hmm. to me as a woman. It's not unique to me as a woman of color. It's a common experience for new officers. But I think that for people who are younger, who are looking at the potential they have in the private sector or going out on their own, um, and right, my my organization, yes, is for profit, but I also focus deeply on social impact. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at what if I went out on my own, I could make an impact now, as opposed to yes, the services is great and I think is really important, but I might have to wait 10 years to make the kind of impact I think is, you know, is important to me. So why did you choose the realm of food to make your impact? I have no idea. I think food food kind of chose me, right? So even before Mm. I had a food blog, way before I I was always the person who would host massive holiday parties that weren't really Mm. about the party. It was about the fact that I was going to cook for three days. And I love like the, the ceremony and the presentation and the process. And I've always been the traveler who would skip going to the Eiffel tower if it meant we had time to go to that like hole in the wall place that my mm-hmm. friend told me about. Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Life's greatest treasures, hole right? in the wall places in Paris. And so that's, that's, it chose me. And I really just, I've never had a moment in my life where food wasn't a central part of it, whether it was through my work or through my own creative outlets or just for pleasure. Gosh, okay. I really miss those, those I miss traveling. Anila, you just, you know, I I just, I hadn't, I haven't thought about this in so long, but every trip I would find the restaurants, Mm -hmm. you know, and go with the list and, and find the place that I knew I had to go to. But, um, gosh, we'll be back. Right. Right. (laughs) Yes, we will. And, and Preeti, that made me think poutine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, she, as someone who has traveled with Preeti, she, we, we were in Colorado visiting a friend, Subdoozer, and she was like, we have to go to this, this restaurant. She, she had her list and I'm mm-hmm. just like, I'll eat where there is food. <laughs> and we had at that place, this French fry poutine, mm-hmm. the best thing. Oh Lord. I am so, I am growing cellulite just thinking about it. It was so delicious. Good. So but delicious. I digress. I digress. Yeah. Um, so Anila, tell us why did you decide with Feed the Malik to focus on, well, actually tell us what is Feed the Malik at this point in your journey? This is your full-time job. What mm-hmm. do you want? So I am a food blogger slash writer. Um, 
recipe developer, sourdough baker, uh, digital marketing entrepreneur, influencer, and advocate. I uh, cover a whole range of things in my platform. So, so seamlessly I, you said all those things. <laughs> well, it's and, hard. And I love it. <laughs> it's actually, it's difficult for me to categorize my business because I do a, a lot and that's intentional for a variety of reasons, but I wanted to work with local restaurants and small businesses to help them with their marketing, but I needed ways to pay for that because I'm talking about working with businesses that right now don't have any money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have a variety of ways that I make that possible and make the other projects that I work on possible. So I do everything from restaurant reviews to developing recipes uh, that are either original or I might develop them in partnership with a company that, you know, has a product that I really love and, and wants a recipe. For example, I've, I've done some like influencer work with Bob's Red Mill and that involves baking and cooking. And that's, those are products I've used since I was a kid, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Since mm-hmm. I was a kid and we always have their stuff in our house. So it's a natural fit. But it's a way for me to work on developing at the same time, like new tasty things that I might want to make at home that others might want to make at home that are really easy to replicate. Um, And I also do, you know, original writing on issues in the food space, whether they're hyper local or sometimes more broad cultural issues as well. What, uh, you know, of all those activities. Ooh. We're, now we're go, go, go. <laughs> of all those activities, which is the one that when you're done or complete or you put out into the world that you think, oh my gosh, this is my job and I cannot believe it. This is so fulfilling. I mean, I'm just going to go to bed really happy today because this one thing I did. So that happens to me a lot. And that might be because I have a new business and it seems yeah. still kind of crazy that like this gets to be my job in general. <laughs> I'm like, really? People want to pay me for this? Like, this is a thing. <laughs> um, and so for example, I have a directory of black owned food businesses in the DMV and it took me so long to put it together and it still requires lots do of you maintenance. You mean the department of motor vehicles? I have to interject. I really do. DC, Maryland, <laughs> I couldn't Virginia. make that connection either. What is DC, this? Maryland and Virginia. So the broader DC area, but a lot of people shorthand on the internet is DMV. And I started this project in March and it's taken so many hours to fact check update. Um, I built an interactive map. I made it searchable. I did all these things I didn't know how to do when I started, right? I have not techie in that sense. Um, and this is just one of those things now that has become valuable to my audience. It's widely used in the DC region. And so part of my business model is I have a Patreon, a subscription that allows people to sign up monthly for my work. And a lot of folks have signed up and told me that part of the reason that they sign up is they want me to be able to continue working on this directory um, because they use it and they use it every week and their parents use it. And, you know, there are apps that do the same thing, but what I realized when I started working on my website was I would get a lot of comments from older Mm-hmm. folks who don't have smartphones or don't use their smartphones in the way that I do as a 30 year old. So apps are not super accessible to them. And we forget about that. I think in this like hyper 
tech focused world where everything we want it to be an easy app, but that's not accessible for, you know, a significant portion of my readership. And so for them having a web directory, that's just a website is, is something that they really value. Now, Anila is being, in my view, extremely modest in saying, Mm -hmm. yes, I have this directory and it's become valuable to my readers. Uh, It is huge. She got featured on Good Morning America. She had a feature in the Washington Post about this and it has exploded her following. Uh, Anila, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, life before the Washington Post article and after (laughs) and the things that have come your way? Because there's a lot to be said about uh, you know, the overnight success many years in the making, but, uh, tell us, tell us about the before and after on that. Yeah. So that's interesting because right. I was a hobby blogger. I had all of these things that I had just worked on at night after work by myself for no pay because I was interested in them. And I thought they were important, including the directory when I started it in March. And so March, April, May roll along My platform is pretty small. I have about 5,000 Instagram followers and I'm still just putting in 20 to 30 hours of extra work on top of my job every week because I'm really passionate about this project. And then June happens and Mm -hmm. we have this, which is still complicated for me to process because it's a wave of black death, right? Of killings of black Americans that spark this interest in not only Black Lives Matter, but in supporting Black creatives and business folks throughout America. So because of that death, suddenly a directory that I'd worked on at night (laughs) that I'm sure only 400 people had ever looked at in the months it had been up before um, was everywhere. And so it was extremely overwhelming when this uh, viral event happened I didn't because sleep. of the the article she was featured and you got yeah the Washington so I was Post. Okay. I was featured in the Washington Post but that's that's actually it was like waking up one morning I'm not kidding and in one week I'm on Food 52 the Washington Post Good Morning America every other DC newspaper has picked it up um, and I have 400 emails coming in every day and more DMs and people want to send stuff to my house and newspapers are calling me, but they need a comment, but they need it right now. They can't wait till tomorrow because it's a hot issue right now. So it was, it exploded my platform, but it also felt really exploitative at that time. Um, Mm. And so there was like a few weeks where I slept like, yeah, for three weeks, I probably slept two or three hours a night and I had like four panic attacks and it was, it was really, really rough to transition that quickly. Um, and then, of course, what we've seen since then, right? My platform, thankfully, continues to grow. But there's been declining interest in in Black issues, right? It's like our, our collective energy for that has been tapped for now. Mm. And the sad part is I suspect it will be that way until we get another wave of Black death. That's one to take in for a moment. Yeah. I can understand the sort of duality of feelings there. 
you know, because on one hand, um, something so awful causing your platform to become successful is difficult to, to live with, you know, on the other hand, you know, that, that interest, regardless of your platform and what it did for your business, you know, does become a positive sliver, right? Mm -hmm. of, okay. I can, I'm going to move past, um, this just a little bit to get there. What initiated that interest? I mean, I know you say it's the events, you know, but I just got this visual of like a ball of string unraveling, you know, very quickly. And so was it a PR event? Was it something that you, it just happened? It was actually. So I had built this directory in March and in June when the, the, the interest first started bubbling, it wasn't a yeah. wave yet, but it had no. started. There were actors on the internet. There were accounts and folks who realized that this could be something they could exploit. And this happened mm -hmm. not only to me, but to, I'm sure, thousands of black creatives throughout the United States where people saw that our work was going to be interesting given the current political and cultural moment, copied it, and put their own branding and logo on it. So people began taking my work and putting it into infographics or just copying it on their websites, but not crediting me. Wow. And one of those uh, accounts um, got picked up by the local papers in DC. So started getting a lot of attention. And what really snowballed it for me was when unbeknownst to me, one of my followers DM'd a bunch of newspaper editors to say, by the way, that was stolen. And this is the person who's been working on this since March. So somebody mm. really intervened and because of them, right, my platform exploded. It was like overnight, I saw this graphic getting all this attention that I was like, that's my work. I don't really know what's going on here. And then the next day, the attention had shifted and, and newspapers were calling me. And I found out later about this person who had sent those messages. Um, but that didn't happen to some other creatives yeah. that I know who had, mm -hmm. you know, done all this work. And that work was then put on huge national platforms with no credit and was essentially stolen from them uh, in the height of this Black Lives Matter movement in June. We have oh, so much work irony. to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, the irony. Uh, Anila, why did you decide to even make the Black Restaurant Guide in the first place? So I started looking for Black-owned restaurants um, during COVID that were still open for takeout and delivery. I just wanted to know for myself. And there is an app that's really great called Eat Okra. I'll plug them. Um, but when I looked at Eat, o Eat Okra at that time, it wasn't super up to date. And that is no one's fault. It's just that things changed so rapidly once the mm -hmm. shutdown started, right? Mm -hmm. Things were changing every hour. Um, and I thought, okay, I have no idea how to update an app. And I, I I'm not connected with these eat okra folks. Like I can't just take it over and like manage the DC side. So I'll just do it on my own website because that is something I know how to do and I can do quickly. Um, and I figured this is going to have to be a project that can be modified very, very quickly given how things are going. And I wanted to make it public because I realized that if I was interested in it and if I thought it was important, if I thought, wow, this part of this, restaurant community in DC is kind of being ignored. Mm -hmm. um, well, then maybe other people feel the same way and can use it as a resource. So do you, what, what, this question kind of has two parts. 
Do you think there are misconceptions about, and I'm putting air quotes for those who are listening, about black food? Um, what do you think those might be? And the restaurants that you're featuring, are they mostly soul food restaurants mm. and establishments or, or not? Yeah. So I think a common misconception is that black food is soul food and that mm -hmm. there is no other black food besides soul food, which I think is problematic um, for a variety of reasons. But it's it's just really reductive, right, on its face. Um, we're talking about uh, an, a diaspora community uh, mm -hmm. that comes from many, many cultures, right? Yeah. So as many cultures as we are descendant from have influenced our foods, right? There's no singular black cuisine. There are many, many, many black American cuisines. Um, and most of the restaurants I feature, I don't think there's a theme except for Ethiopian food. And that's because I live in DC and DC has one of the largest Ethiopian yeah. populations, right? So that's, that's just because I live in this beautiful wonderland of incredibly diverse Ethiopian options. You, do you think you're going to expand? I, I don't know. Like I'm thinking this might be a good New York City thing. I So part of this is tough because I've had quite a few people approach me about this who want to, you know, they want to sign on, they want to help. But so far, the folks that have approached me about you know, working under the Feed the Malik umbrella, it's been pretty apparent from initial conversations that they're quite frankly only interested in growing their own platforms. Um, wow. And so, you know, I would love to expand, but what I envision in the future is just a lot of travel, which mm -hmm. I think people who found me in June or later would be surprised or will be a little surprised when they're like, why is she suddenly here and then there? But Anyone who knew me from before, from before I was anything, knows that travel has always been a huge part of my life. And, yeah. you know, I have spent quite a few years abroad and I would love to spend just as many years exploring the diversity of black cuisines within America, within the United States. There's so much here that, um, you know, why wouldn't I, living in D.C., go to New York a few times a year and have, right, like... New York guides and then work yes. with work with black creatives in Charleston and Atlanta. And I would love to do that. That involves, you know, probably quite a bit of travel, but I'm hesitant to put something I've grown from nothing into the hands of someone else who fully lives in another city to run it. Because thus far I haven't met someone that I would trust to do that, unfortunately. Um, no, I mean, I think I think it's your baby. And, and one of the things and there's so many beautiful qualities about you. I think you're so I, I don't know, it, you're just this bright light. But one of the one of the things I, I want to point out, and I'm sure people have picked up on this theme, is none of this has come out of the need to do anything other than focus on what you love and share that enthusiasm with others and share the love of what others are doing in terms of the black community and black food and black creatives with a wider audience. And I, I want to point out that that to me is the singular most important trait of anyone who's looking to do anything to really, you know, lead from your heart. And I, and I admire you for doing that. Thank you. I try to 
you know, I try to keep that focus in my work in all aspects. And this is, I mean, thankfully it worked out, but I've had moments the past few months where I'm like, this isn't going to work. Like, (laughs) because for example, right. I'm an influencer, whatever that means. And I I do do branded partnerships. They're a great way for for me to have income. But there was a few months where I basically said no to almost everything because like, what do I have to do with a limo company? You know, like that doesn't make sense for me or the, or scooters. You could eat food in the limo, (laughs) you know, or scooters. (laughs) Corrupting her. (laughs) I'm sorry. No, but, and I told myself, no, you know, don't just say yes, because it's, it's money. Like right now it seems crazy when you have a new business to turn down income, but just keep saying no. And I, it it was like having to convince myself that I wasn't making a terrible choice. And I'm really lucky now the holidays have rolled around and I have these campaigns with brands, like I said, that I've used since I was a kid that I really enjoy, but it is really scary to do that. Yeah. It's really scary. And my husband has had to talk me off the ledge so many times in the past few months where I'm like, this was a terrible idea. We're going to go broke. You know, like. Very, you're courageous. I don't know. Take your pick. Both. I think they can mm-hmm. be both. Courage is the, the decision to forge ahead when it is scary. So there, don't make her pick one. In, in my humble <laughs> okay, opinion. go. <laughs> I think that there is something, I cannot agree more with what Preeti is saying. Your integrity is just unquestioned. Your intentionality is unquestioned because for you, it's not about the money. And I, I, we get to talk to a lot of entrepreneurial people and there really is tremendous power that really relates to the manifestation that eventually comes about in just staying true to the vision and everything else that comes around, even the the material gains really are secondary, a distant second. But if you don't make them the focus, ironically, they seem to come. So I I wonder, don't get me wrong. I want to make money. No, you know, I was just going to say that. Yes. We, we we're do. not minimizing the <laughs> of earning a living. We are not at yeah. all. At all, we all have to eat, yeah. and we have to pay for the groceries. So and pay our student loans. Yes. <laughs> at this Listen. point, that's the thing. My husband and I recently, you know, within the last ten years, finished grad school, and when we look at those student loans, we're like, please. please. We are. We are all hoping for this next semester. <laughs> They get a pardon on those. So I feel your pain, sister. I feel your pain. Curiosity. Have to ask, what kind of food is is uh, offering you comfort nowadays? <sighs> I mean, of course, you get to eat so many wonderful things uh, and, and feature these awesome restaurateurs. But is there any dish that you just you know, that you're not sick of, that just, you know what, long day, I just want, boom. So I would say for me, because food is so emotional, it has more to do with what I know about the businesses, right? So Mm -hmm. I do eat at chains and, you know, I, I try to shop small and I try to spend intentionally, but nobody's perfect. But when I, for example, go to, there's, um, there's a seafood place called the Shell Shack in Maryland that I really like, that's really comforting to me because I know that the chef 
and the, you know, partner, they're super nice people. And I know they're working so hard. And I also know that despite how tired they are and how crazy things have been, that they're really grateful for, you know, for just where they are and what they have. And so like that makes me feel comfort during this time or going to a small business where, um, you know, I know, for example, that this small woman owned restaurant, right, she's fought the entire time to not have to lay off any of her employees, even though, you know, takeout isn't going to make that happen forever. Um, but those are the types of places where I, I do get comfort eating there. And I try to relay those stories on my page. Instagram mm-hmm. always tries to, to do me and cut me off because there's a character limit. But I try to inject, you know, those little vignettes into my content because I think that that's, those are the stories we need right now. Honestly, they are. That is so powerful. Thank you for sharing that because I really, in, in, in your pursuit to feed yourself and comfort yourself, we really can help to feed the people in the food industry. Mm Mm-hmm. Because there is still a pandemic going on. <laughs> yes. And, and for us to, you know, just re-expand our definition of what comfort food can be, um, mm-hmm. food that feeds others, I think is really beautiful. I oh, love that. You are so awesome. I know. You know, I don't know how it's noon. I really, every week, I don't know how these hours go by. But Dee, you started something last week that I love. Or I don't know when it started. I, I'm just going to say <laughs> you started it. But your ending questions are fabulous. So why don't you take it away? Because I love it. I love watching the guests answer these questions. Here we go. So Anila, I'm just going to ask you a couple rapid fire questions. Please respond to them with no more than one sentence. And if it's just one word, shoot from the hip. Oh, gosh. Okay. Thanksgiving is coming up. So here we go. Likes to do this, Anila. Take you by (laughs) surprise. (laughs) A dish that you think can make any holiday meal more spectacular is... Fried chicken. <laughs> I'm actually... My my mom's coming, um, and I'm going to get to have that tonight. So, yes, I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> um, number two, the most underrated food that you think everybody ought to try is... I mean, I think it's an entire cuisine, Ethiopian cuisine. Okay. I have so many people who yeah. say, I've never tried Ethiopian. I'm like, get what? your life, get your life. Yes. I fully, fully agree. Okay. A chef who I would love to break bread with one day is. I don't know. That's <laughs> See, I, I love that. She is like, I don't know. D that's I fine. That's why she's like, I've, I've done it with so many. So, <laughs> all right. The list is complete. <laughs> yes. Okay. Let me tweak that. A restaurant that I would love to eat at one day is. Um, it's called Sazon. It's not a restaurant yet. And so my hope is that it becomes a restaurant because he is a incredible cook chef who honestly, he's selling plates from his house and it's the best food I've had. What kind of food and where can anybody find it? so it's in dc he has an instagram which i featured his food is phenomenal he'll deliver cool Uh, and and i believe he is puerto rican but he he has weekly menus that draw on a variety of cuisines and it is clear when you get your food even from how beautifully it's plated that there is love in this food and it is so impeccably done 
All right. Ask him if Uber Eats will come to Brooklyn. And the final one, anyone who is considering taking their side hustle center stage should get a lawyer and an accountant. Oh, (laughs) see, did you set, did you set her up? She didn't, she didn't set me up. Because what I've quickly learned is I can't do everything myself. That's right. And you can't learn the things you're inevitably going to have to learn to scale your business while you also worry about, like, did you file your quarterly taxes correctly? Wow. Anyway, you have you filled my heart yeah, I know, with so much joy. Where can people find Feed the Malik? Where can they find you? Where can they, can they follow you? Tell us, tell us all. Malik or Malik? Both. I mean, honestly, so black people say Malik and Arabs say Malik. And my life is like kind of evenly split between both. And neither sounds weird to me. <laughs> right. So I love it. I learned something new. Um, so feed the Malik on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, everything. Feedthemalik.com. And if you want to support me on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash feedthemalik. Any other projects that you want to shout out that your uh, listeners, uh, followers, our audience uh, should be on the lookout for? I have a few insanely huge projects coming that I am dying to tell people about, but I'm not allowed to yet. So stay tuned. (laughs) All right, everybody, please, please watch. She is one to keep your eye on. Mm -hmm. I see wonderful things ahead and I can't wait to become a, you know, a subscriber to uh, whatever foods channel thing you have in the future or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm like, you're giving me Padma vibes, truly. My, <laughs> my dream is a TV show, but you know, we got to, it's out there now. It's we got a there. lot of work to do to get there. I'm working on it. I even, I even am learning how to do makeup now. I've never worn makeup ever. Because I'm like, one day, <laughs> well, no, one day someone who's scouting might see my videos. And if I look haggard, <laughs> right, because I haven't slept because I'm running a business by myself, that's bad. <laughs> All right. It's I can see happen. now I can see myself sending this text with a screenshot of the TV or the screen, I should say, to Dee Dee being like, we had her on the volley effect. Remember that way back when? <laughs> Last year. (laughs) Well, we hope everyone has an amazingly beautiful Thanksgiving. Absolutely. Absolutely. Blessings. And certainly it's going to be different than others. uh, But uh, if, if you are grateful and there are things to be grateful for, that's its own reason to celebrate. So thank you, everybody, for listening again to another episode of The Bali Effect. We love you. Anila, thank you. Preeti. It's been dope. Bye. Bye, everybody. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, follow us on Instagram, the underscore Bali underscore effect, and we'll see you there. Thank you. Bye. Check